0: You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. So good to be with you here today and, uh, yeah, worshipping. Wasn't it such a great few weeks of uh, praying and fasting last few weeks? It was great to see numbers of you in, in our, our prayer times as we met at Central, some of, some of you at lunchtime, some of you in evenings, and some of you there at Encounter last Sunday evening. Just raise a hand if you were Encounter last Sunday evening. It was, a, it was uh, an extraordinary time for those of you who weren't there, uh, really felt like we'd pushed into something more of the presence and revelation of uh, Jesus. So good, so good for us to continue to push in and uh, hold on to what we have taken ground in in the last few weeks. Well, it's my joy to bring the word this morning and I'm going to start us off with a question. And here's a question for you. The most expensive pearl that was ever discovered uh, was found by a Filipino fisherman in the seas of Palawan Island. It measured an incredible, wait for it, 26 inches that's a big pearl. Yeah. Now, my question for you is, how much do you think it's valued at? 26-inch, wild pearl, how much do you think it's valued? I'll give you three options to help. Do you think it was A, one million US dollars? B, 10 million US dollars? Or C, 100 million US dollars? Oh, quick decision. Okay, if you think it's A, 1 million, raise a hand. Some take us for 1 million. Okay, thank you very much. If you think it's 10 million, raise a hand. A few people think it's 10. Thank you very much. few more for that. If you think it's 100 million, raise a hand. Okay, a few there. It is actually valued at 100 million dollars. Can you imagine such a thing? Now I do need to let you know I have got this information from a website called PearlSource.com, and there is a chance that they put that information there just to make their own prices look more moderate. So they've got to take that into account but still a million dollars for a pearl. Is he still a fisherman? fisherman? Good question John. (laughs) I doubt it. (laughs) Only on a Sunday afternoon for leisure purposes perhaps. Now that's a very big pearl, but you know even small pearls are valuable, and they're produced. In case you don't know, in wild oysters, this like mollusk shellfish uh, in the sea. You can't. They do farm them as well, but that's a different thing, and they don't. Uh, they're not as valuable. Only one in ten thousand oysters will yield a pearl. So if you went diving today, you'd have to get through ten thousand probably before you might find a pearl. And only a small percentage of those that are found are actually deemed useful by the jewelry industry. Which means a pearl necklace from Wild Pearls, particularly if they're from the South Seas, can cost anything from 10,000 US dollars to 100,000 US dollars. And I'll notice a point where you're looking at my neck. 100 <laughs> <laughs> million. No, I don't know exactly. They're not real. Very precious because it used to belong to my nana, but not real pearls. But I just thought it would be fun while we're talking about them. (laughs) Now, the reality is this. An untroubled oyster will not produce a pearl. In order to produce a pearl, there has to be some sort of irritant that gets into the shell. Whether a grain of sand or grit or some sort of imperfection, that gets inside and, and essentially threatens the oyster. It's the presence of something there that shouldn't be there and that is potentially damaging to the creature that provokes it to produce something. And it produces this substance called nacre. It's like a, lu- a lustrous substance, it's also known as mother of pearl. And it uses this to cover and make this sort of protective coating over irritant that has come in. And over time, the nacre gets built up layer by layer over the irritant. And as it does that, it forms a pearl, probably taking a few years to do so. Now, I've not actually come to you this morning to talk about shellfish. You might be glad to know. But actually, to consider our own lives and some scripture that suggests that there may be some sort of not dissimilar processes and responses that we can make when there are things in our lives that are not things that we wanted to be there. Irritance, grit, a point of sadness or pain or sorrow which hit us all at different points. But there may be something that we can do in terms of how we respond that can produce something of great worth in our lives. If you want a title today, if you're taking some notes, it's, it's Producing Pearls, that's the title today. And I'm going to read a psalm, you might want to turn there, it's Psalm 126, and it reads like this, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like those who dreamed, our mouths we're filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we're filled with joy. Bring back our captives like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them powerful psalm. Begins when the Lord brought back the captives from exile. A little bit of context, I'm sure many of you may know, God's people, specifically the tribe of Judah, they'd been exiled and taken to Jerusalem, carried off as captives to a foreign land. This was more than a mild irritant in their lives. This was a life-threatening, life-changing moment. They were a people oppressed, far from home, livelihoods gone, land lost, their nation in ruins. Some lost their lives in the process. Those who survived lost loved ones. And then they were there, stuck, exiled for 70 years. This is a long time. But a day came when it changed. A day came when it changed. That's what this psalm is celebrating. In my devotions this week, I've been in the book of Ezra, which is when the exiles or the survivors, as they are referred to, are given permission by King Cyrus of Persia to return, to build a temple again that he's going to pay for. I mean, it's nothing short of a miracle that he changes or he comes to this point and allows the situation to be turned around. And this psalm is a celebration of their return, of the Lord acting on their behalf. But I want to draw particular attention to verses five and six. It says, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. The psalm here is suggesting there's something we can do, maybe must do in our weeping, in our sorrow and and sadness, in in the grit of today's painful situation that may feel like it's scratching us. It may feel like it's damaging us on the inside, but there's something we can do which will help to bring us out into a place of joy. And this is the very territory for producing pearls. The psalmist suggests we must keep sowing in the middle of our tears, sow seed today that will bring a different joyful harvest tomorrow, like the oyster produces nacre, We can sow seed today, produce something today that will bring a different harvest tomorrow. Now I know we can read the words, perhaps that doesn't sound too hard, but of course the reality is... When we hit a tough season, and I know many of you, there's different ones of you in the room journeying different things, if there's sadness or pain or loss or limitation and disappointment, if I can say it like this, when the grit hits, we don't feel like being intentional about what we're sowing, do we? It's easy in those moments and those seasons to find bitterness, finding a home in our hearts. We can sometimes lack discipline in those seasons. We can think, does it even matter what I do? We can entertain thoughts that we wouldn't normally entertain. We can even be tempted to quit and give up and maybe even walk away from Jesus. We, we can take offense, can't we, at how God is acting or isn't acting and what he's done and what he hasn't done. And we can be full of questions. Why is there this problem? Why this grit in the shell of my life? Why hasn't it been removed? Why me? And these are all understandable responses and questions But they're also more like the weeds of an untended life than the intentional response that's pointed to in the psalm of going out weeping, carrying seed to sow. But if we'll sow in our tears, then we will reap in joy. If we'll go out in our weeping, carrying seed to sow, we will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves. That's what the psalm promises. There can be a harvest that will be fruitful in our lives, if we can respond to the problem and the pain like the oyster does producing nacre, then something can be sown and produced in this season, which in time is going to be precious, and it's going to be a source of joy in time. I know that in time is a bit of a problem for most of us, because who wants to wait for a pearl to grow? Who wants to live with the grit? Not many of us. Maybe none of us. We, when we hit a difficult time, most of us just think, I just want out and I want out now. Lord, get me out. If you pray a more holy prayer than that, well, please pray for me. The reality is that something can be sown and grown in the conditions of difficulty that can never be grown in comfort yeah. and ease. And so what we do with our pain is enormously important. I read these words. They were in a devotion last year on Lectio 365, which is a very helpful app. You might want to check it out. It said, How I deal with my pain may well be the most significant factor in how my life will pan out. The things I go to for comfort in response to the question, What shall I do with my pain? will probably define the person I become. It will also define whether my pain is transformed into something useful, beautiful, and neighbor loving, or whether it's transferred onto others calcifying into bitterness, sickness, and broken relationships. It's powerful. It's not easy. There was a day in my previous church a long time ago now, but a Sunday morning, someone brought a prophetic word. And they said, there's someone here, and they've been wounded. You may have heard me tell the story before. You've been wounded, but you've let it get infected. And the essence of the word was, you need to deal with the infection And then the Lord can heal you. And I knew the moment it was said that the word was for me. I was deeply grateful that they didn't make me raise a hand or come out or any of those things because I didn't want to make myself known in that moment. But I knew it was for me because it'd been a a situation where I'd, I'd not been treated very well. I'd been treated badly. But my response then after that had not been entirely godly, let's say. And there was pain and there was bitterness and some pride and entitlement in all this mess. And so when the word came I knew it was for me. And I I remember going at the end of the service, I went to find Pat, the lady who'd brought the word. I was like, can you help me know what I need to do with this? And she was like, she looked in a diary, she couldn't meet me for two weeks. I was like, I'm convicted. I'm needy. I need help before two weeks. But she couldn't meet with me. So I was like, I've got to just do this myself. I've got to find a way to process this. And so that evening, I got the kids in bed. Martin was out at church. So I got, got all the kids in bed and then sat down. And I I began to journal so that I could try to unpick, okay, where had I been hurt? What was wo- What was a wounding from someone else? And then where were my response is in the middle of that. Where had I been ungodly? Where had I been prideful? Where had I been bitter? Where, where was I unforgiving? And I'm sorry if you're shocked to hear your pastor speaking like this, but I am going to be honest with you and not pretend I'm something that I'm not. The reality was with the Holy Spirit's help, I was able to tease out the strands of this mess that was inside me to find a wound that needed healing and what was infection that came from my own fleshly response. And as I did this, it was one of the times that i have been most conscious of the ugliness of my sin and of God's desire for me to see it as he saw it, or at least a bit more as he saw it. And I remember feeling deeply convicted, wanting to be so different, but with an incredible absence of condemnation and an amazing sense of love acceptance, the gentleness and the firmness of God's love but commitment to refine me and not leave me where I was. I needed his help to weed out some things and to repent and the truth was I was still in a season where there was some weeping but he helped me to be positioned to sow good seed in that season going forward which in time has brought me joy. See what we will do with our pain will probably define the people that we become. So how do we make sure that in our pain, in our lives, it leads to producing pearls? How can we sow something for a harvest tomorrow? Well, we're going to just take a a brief encounter with five different uh, characters, writers of the Bible, who are each going to just show us one thing, one of five things that we can sow in our tears so that in our weeping, if we do this, it will make a way for us to come back singing with joy and carrying sheaves with us. First up, we're going to start with Hannah. If you're new to the Bible, just stay with me. Uh, we're going to give you a bit of an overview of some people today. If we consider Hannah briefly, we're not going to read the text, but you might want to go there. It's 1 Samuel 1. This poor woman, Hannah, she uh, had been unable to conceive a child. That's grit. That's grit in your life. That's painful. If that were not enough, her husband had another wife, Penina. She had lots of children. That's painful. And as if that wasn't enough, well, the other wife used to irritate and provoke her and come after her and push her to the point of irritation and upset and weeping. And in fact, we read of them going up to the temple of the Lord and Penina doing just that until Hannah, she's like, I cannot eat. She's too upset. She's too distressed. And the priest sees her behaving in a way which is a little unusual. In fact, he thinks she's had too much wine. Of course, that's a common thing to do in our society, to self-medicate with alcohol. That's how often people in our world respond to their grit, isn't it? Not so with Hannah. And in fact, in her interaction with Eli, the priest, it it becomes clear that in her pain and frustration, her anguish and grief, she calls it, She's made a vow to the Lord. She's prayed and she's weeping before him. And she says to Eli, I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. And this is Hannah's advice to us. Pour out your heart to the Lord. Pour out your heart to him. When we do this, it sows dependence on him. It helps us to lean towards him and not away from him. I know sometimes in the seasons when things are difficult and things hurt, it's easy to be a bit offended with God and back off a little bit. But Hannah says, no, no, pour out your heart to the Lord. Pour out your soul to the Lord. See, we can't afford to have distance with God in the season when we so desperately need him. We've got to lean in and not away. Pour out your heart to him. And I know he already knows what's going on, but he invites you to come as his son and his daughter and to pour out your heart to him. The psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 62, verse 8. He says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for he is your refuge, your safe place. You know, when we journey the toughest seasons, if we'll pour out our hearts and our souls to God, what it does is it deepens our relationship with him in just the same way as it does. If you go through some tough stuff and you journey it with another human being there alongside you with it, that relationship changes. You're not the same. You've journeyed something deep and profound with them and your relationship is deeper. And it's just the same with the Lord. If we'll pour out our heart to him, if we'll position ourselves in dependence on him, it changes our relationship. It deepens it. It strengthens it. And that will bring you joy. Not just in the season you're in, but in the one that you will step into. This is the process of producing joy pearls Hannah shows us number one pour out your soul to the Lord pour out your heart to the Lord next up we're going to just dive in with David this is number two now of course some of you will know David was a a famous king of Israel the one who defeated Goliath we know about some of his high moments but there were years of battle and challenge for David before he was king He was on the run for Saul for a very long time. Uh, Saul was a paranoid king who wanted David dead because he knew that David was going to be king after him and he was trying to deal with that scenario. He attempted to murder him more than once. He pursued him with a whole army. This is serious grit. His life was endangered. There's a load of chapters of 1 Samuel that are about David being pursued by someone trying to kill him. David knew how to pour out his heart to God. In fact, 67 of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. If you're not sure where to get started on pouring out your heart, there's some great Psalms. Number 13 is a good one to start at. Are we all right there, Matthew? Is that me? Yeah? (laughs) The Psalms give us a window into David pouring out his heart into God, but pretty much he always begins and ends by honoring God, choosing to praise him choosing to worship him, even when his circumstances seem inexplicable to him, even when they're unbearable to him, even when he has questions for God about like, where are you? And when are you going to show up? And why have you not moved yet? David keeps giving praise and thanks to God in the midst of it. He says these words, I will extol the Lord at all times. All times. Psalm 34 verse 1. David is reminding us to keep thanks and praise alive or keep praise and thanks alive. We don't stop doing it just because the times are hard. There are still many reasons and things to be thankful for. If you've got breath in your body today, there's something to be thankful for. If you had breakfast this morning, there's something to be thankful for. The fact that we can meet in freedom and there's not spies in our midst or someone reporting us, we have something to be thankful for. If we've experienced the grace of Jesus in our lives, we have much to be thankful for. It doesn't take away from the pain and the sorrow and the sadness, but we still have reasons to thank and praise God. David reminds us to keep praise and thanks alive. I think David understood that when things are tough, in fact, in the toughest situations, the best thing we can do is call to mind the goodness of God. Is called to mind the faithfulness of God, that he's good and that all he does is good. There may be some difficult things in our situation right now because we live in a fallen, broken world, surrounded by fallen, broken people, which means that everything that happens in the world is not good, but God is good and all he does is good. That's Psalm 119, 68. And when we choose to focus on him, we just take the focus off our circumstances and needing them to produce something for us and we fix our hope on the nature of God, of who he is and what he is like. And because he is good and because he is unchanging, there is incredible hope to be found in God and in praising him and trusting him. And when we begin to speak something or sing something, we activate our trust. We set it alight. It gets going and reminds us of the truths of who God is of his goodness and faithfulness, and it helps us to lean into those things. It reminds us of how good he's been in the past, and it helps us to remember this and helps us to think, actually, if he did that before, he will do it again. That The good God is for us and with us, even if it doesn't feel like it because of the circumstances today, even because it doesn't feel like it, because I can feel the grit. Praise and thanks are incredibly powerful. You know, even naturally speaking, it's understood that gratitude, not even to God, but gratitude, is something of a superpower when it comes to mental health. If you're struggling, gratitude is a key practice that can help you. How much more when we are practicing gratitude in the living God who loves us, has given himself for us, is unchanging and is for us, not against us and has given us his spirit and his promise that he's never going to leave us and never going to forsake us. David says keep praise and thanks alive. This is how we produce pearls. Next number three. We're gonna check in with Joseph. Joseph we read of in Genesis. You you may have never read the story, but you've maybe seen the musical if you haven't, but Joseph had perhaps more than his fair share of grit, you might say. Joseph was a a 17-year-old with some dreams. That's not such an unusual thing, but he had dreams from God that he shared with his brothers and they didn't like them. They did something just extraordinarily terrible. They made up a plot and a plan and told their father he'd been murdered and they sold him as a slave. Shocking, devastating for Joseph. He worked hard as a slave, but was then falsely accused of assaulting Potiphar's wife and was thrown into jail without trial. That's a lot of grit. We would understand if Joseph became a very bitter man. It wouldn't be unreasonable, would it? But there's a miraculous course of events, which you'll have to read Genesis for if you want to read all of those. And and slight spoiler alert, Joseph does in the end get taken out of jail and ends up as Pharaoh's second in command. But there were 13 years from his dream to when he actually stepped into that role. 13 years (laughs) in which he was betrayed, sold as a slave by his own brothers, 13 years working as a slave and then being imprisoned, falsely accused. And somehow at the end of this, when miraculous situation occurs and Joseph is invited to step in and speak to Pharaoh and then serve Pharaoh, Joseph has responded and managed himself in such a way that when the moment comes, he is completely ready to step into it. He doesn't have a load of baggage to sort out. It would have been perfectly reasonable to say, I would love to help Pharaoh. I feel that's a call that's on my life, but I'm just going to need a bit of therapy to get my head in the right space for this. I've got some things I need to process. That would be reasonable. But somehow he's managed to journey all this grit and keep a right heart and a soft heart. It's one of those times in the Bible, I wish we had a little more detail here. Joseph, how did you do it? What was happening in your inner world? What were the choices you were making? But we don't get told that. But this is a man who definitely knew how to produce pearls. And one of the things that I do see, though, is that Joseph had learned to forgive. We see this in the conversation he has with his brothers. When his father dies, his brothers think, oh, my goodness, dad has died because there was a reunion. You'll have to read the story for the full thing. But they think now that dad is dead, he is going to come after us. They knew that they didn't deserve to get away with what they'd done to him. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good and to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. When Joseph says to them, am I in the place of God? He's saying, look, judgment and vengeance, they're not mine. It's like, I have left those in the hands of God. Joseph has forgiven. He's released what had been done to him back into God's hands. It doesn't mean it was okay, but he's saying, I'm not holding it against those individuals. That's God's business as to what happens to them. Now We wouldn't have blamed Joseph if he'd struggled to forgive. Maybe he did struggle, but he got there. What was done to him was terrible but he shows us that even in weeping we can sow forgiveness and if we sow forgiveness we'll reap forgiveness that is a joy-filled harvest to be forgiven ourselves when we fail and fall and come short Jesus's words of course Matthew 6 say that we must forgive he says for if you forgive men when they sin against you your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Yeah. This is serious stuff. This is not God playing a sort of tit for tat, I'll not forgive unless you do. That's not, that's not what's going on here. Rather, I think that forgiveness and the grace that allows it is something that flows in and out. And there's a flowing. And if we restrict one, we restrict the other. The theologian N.T. Wright puts it like this, whatever the spiritual, moral, and emotional equivalent of the lungs may be, it's either opened or closed. So if it's open, able, and willing to forgive others, it will also be open to receive God's love and forgiveness. But if it's locked up to one, it will be locked up to the other. And of course, Unforgiveness has a devastating impact on people. It takes their focus, their energy. It causes anxiety. It can even lead to physical illness. And Joseph reminds us one of the key things that we can and must sow is forgiveness. Even, perhaps especially in the tough situations, forgive, forgive, forgive. This is how we produce pearls. That's number three, number four. We come to James. We're going to visit James in the New Testament. James was probably the brother of Jesus. He was a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. And in his letter, he writes this in at James 1 verse 4. He says, Perseverance must finish its work yeah. so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, James lived by this and died by this. It wasn't just words. He persevered even when persecuted, even to the point where he was martyred for his faith. So these are not empty words from James, but he wasn't going to give up. And he encourages the followers of Jesus to not give up either under pressure. He's saying there's something about perseverance when it's tough. If we will keep going anyway, you can learn and grow in perseverance. This is something you can't learn and you can't gain it when things aren't tough. You can't. No grit, no pearl. No pain, no perseverance. You know, when it's tough but we refuse to give up or refuse to walk away from Jesus, our perseverance is working something in us that James says it's maturing us, completing us, shaping us, finishing its work in us. And without that work, we won't be done. In the toughest situations, I've experienced some things, some loss and grief and difficulty and frustration. When, when I've persevered, I've always found Jesus to be worthy and to be worth it. There's something of the challenge of persevering that refines and intensifies my love for Jesus. Although I do know I've never truly suffered for my faith like many do. In fact, since prayer and fasting, I, I've re-engaged with praying for the persecuted church. Uh, I'd done it before, but I just it dropped off a little bit. I've been using the Open Doors World Watch List, which is a resource online that's really helpful. And I've been reading the last couple of weeks, the sixth toughest place on the earth to be a Christian is Nigeria. In Nigeria, last year on average, 13 Christians every day were killed for their faith. And 82% of the Christians killed worldwide were in Nigeria. And there's a quote on Open Door's prayer guide from Pastor Zachariah, who lost his wife and son in an attack on Christians in his village last year. And he's quoted in their prayer guide. He says this, I'm pleading with our dear brothers and sisters in Christ to help me, to pray that God will help me to provide for our four remaining children that are with me, after my wife died, and for God to encourage them to hold on to Him and never turn back. His prayer for His children is that they will persevere. You see, perseverance produces pearls, precious and bringing joy for this life and the next. They're not made overnight. They're formed in a season when the oyster keeps producing nacre, covering the grit, putting on another layer, keeping going, refusing to let the weeds take over, persevering in sowing. So don't give up. Sow perseverance. It will work in you. It will bear fruit in you. It will shape your love and your life for Jesus. And in time, it will bring you home to him. It will bring you joy on the journey, but persevere. That's what James points to. And fifthly, finally, let's look at Jesus. Of course, so many words and so many examples we could look at for Jesus. What can he speak to us about what seed we sow in weeping? And there's a couple of places in the Gospels where we find Jesus weeping, but really there's only one where he's in his own pain. And it's, we find him in that profound moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not what my will, not my will, but yours be done. This is the only time we see Jesus pray a prayer that doesn't get answered how he wanted it to be. He says, please take it from me. You know, when our prayer isn't answered how we wanted it to be, often we have a problem, don't we? But in this place when that happens, we have an opportunity to sow something extremely precious, and it is our will. To be able to say to the Lord, not my will, but yours be done. It's a prayer of relinquishment, of letting go, of letting go of control, which we just, most of us so struggle to do. And this is where we can sow some of the most precious seed, putting our hopes, our dreams into the hands of God to let God choose, to let God work it out his way. And this, this isn't resignation, which is devoid of hope. This is a, a relinquishment, which is a full and wholehearted agreement with God that his way is altogether good and right. Even if or when the outcome isn't what I wanted. And of course, there's always a wrestle, always a struggle to sow this kind of seed. And it can only ever be truly sown in a place of personal pain. But it brings forth an incredible harvest, a settled peace. In time, the outworked will of God. If, if you're in a season where this resonates, you think, yeah, I'm, I'm wrestling with relinquishing. I would recommend Richard Foster's book on prayer. Finding the heart's true home. There's a chapter called The Prayer of Relinquishment, and it is a great companion in such moments. Jesus' words, not my will, but yours be done, they show us to sow our will, to sow relinquishment. And his words that we may be read. In uh, time of prayer and fasting, John twelve twenty four give us a promise here. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You can't sow anything into the hands of God and it not bring forth a harvest. I wonder, Frimpong, if you can come and, and help me as we come to conclude. Five things then. We can sow in our weeping that will bring in time a harvest of joy. Five things that can produce pearls in our pain is we pour out our heart to the Lord. We keep praise and thanks alive. We forgive. We persevere. We relinquish. When I was a student, I experienced a situation that That hurt me quite considerably, and I had questions as to why God had allowed this to happen, many questions, and for a time, I felt very raw. I I knew that I needed and wanted to forgive, and I knew I didn't want to get bitter, but it was painful. Probably everyone in the room knows something of what that feels like. But in that season, what began to happen was whenever I struggled, I just started to ask God for more grace. It just became my prayers, like, Lord, I need more grace, this hurts today. I need more grace. I would ask it when I was at home. I would ask it when I was walking somewhere. I would ask it when I was at work. I was a trainee physiotherapy. I'd ask it in the hospital. I'd ask it washing my hands between patients. Whenever I just knew I was struggling, it became my constant prayer. Lord, give me more grace. Your provision that meets me in my insufficiency and the truth was I didn't always feel a tangible answer in those moments but that was my response and that's how I lent in to get through some tough days it was all I could sow. At the end of the season what I found was that something had been deposited into my soul not something that I could have produced myself but something that I could then access and draw and it was like a reservoir of grace that I'd, I'd asked for, and day by day, it had been put in me. It had been covering the grit, covering the thing that would cause me pain. It was layer on layer. Each time I asked, it was like another layer? Couldn't always feel it because it still hurt, but it's another layer, another layer. And when I emerged from that season, and, and let me say, if you're in a season, there always comes a point where this season becomes that season. And you don't have to talk about it in this painful season because it will be that painful season because they come to an end, you know, and you'll move on and that season will be over. But when I came to the end of that season, I emerged and there was something precious. You might call it a pearl of grace. I sowed some seed in that season that still brings me joy because of what it opened up for me, because of what it taught me about the faithfulness of Jesus and his sufficiency, how it taught me to taste and find the grace of God. And it became so indescribably precious that if I could go back and change the script, if I could turn the clocks back and things be different, I wouldn't change anything because I needed that pain. I needed that provocation because it produced a pearl. I know if some of us, this is a message for today and it's right here and it's right now you need it. For others maybe this is just a message for you to put away for another day. But what I would love us to do as we just conclude is take a moment to pray for those who know they're in a really tough season. And just to pray for you, the comfort and the grace of Jesus to be with you, the the strength and enabling to sow and to make the choices to be intentional, that will help you come through, will help you produce pearls and help you sow for the next season. So I wonder if we can all bow our heads and close our eyes, bring our hearts to the Lord. And if... If you know this is a a now word for you today, or you know that you just need to reach out to the Lord, then I just invite you to stand to your feet if you're able to. Maybe if that's difficult for you to do and you just want to position yourself open to receive, then feel free to do that. Jesus, we thank you. that you walk with us in the tough things. We thank you that you have redeemed us. You have called us by name and you are walking with us. And even though sometimes in the toughest days we can't always feel your presence in the way that we want it, we thank you that you've promised never to leave us and never to forsake us. And we just pray especially for each person standing or receiving this morning Holy Spirit, would you minister into their hearts right now that you are with them, that you are for them and not against them. Cut through the questions with your assurance, with your eternal promises, that you are going to hold them, that goodness and mercy are going to follow them all the days of their life, that they will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, And Father, we just pray that you would pour out your strength and your comfort and grace today like a covering into the raw places, a covering over every irritant, every pain, every sorrow, every loss, every limitation, everything that's being wrestled with. Holy Spirit, would you minister your grace? And would you enable each one of us to make choices today, to sow for tomorrow, to make the choices that will help us to produce pearls in our lives, things that are precious, things that carry your grace and your provision and that mean tomorrow we will come back with songs of joy, carrying sheaves that will be rejoicing, Father, help each one of us, we pray.